If you will, meet me in Mark chapter 14 this morning, Mark chapter 14, as we continue our journey through Mark's gospel. Uh, we will land next week uh, on Easter Sunday, not on the crucifixion, but we're going to stick right where we are, so we're not going to get to the crucifixion until a few weeks uh, after Easter, but that's okay. We're going to be looking at... Um, the Lord's Supper next week, and you can't talk about the Lord's Supper without talking about the crucifixion, so it'll, it'll tie in nicely next week, and uh, during that service, go ahead and let you know, we will observe the Lord's Supper uh, next week um, as well. If you've been around here long enough, you know something about us is that, um, you know, we don't have a specific uh, time frame as to when we observe the Lord's Supper. Um, it's not monthly or quarterly. Um, one year we did it the entire, we did it every Sunday. We did it 52 weeks in a, in a row, and some people come in and thought they were in a Presbyterian church, not a Baptist church, and, and that's okay. Um, so, but we will observe it next Sunday uh, during um, the preaching time together. And so I hope that you'll be here on Easter Sunday. I hope that you'll bring someone with you Next Sunday, um, somebody brought up last week, since we've made the adjustment, we've uh, put out more chairs because the crowds are, are, seem to be growing a little bit each and every week. And next week is Super Bowl Sunday for church. That's kind of the way I look at it. And um, so um, hopefully the Lord will bless us with a good crowd. And that will uh, more than likely happen when you invite somebody to come to church with you. And so anyway, what I was going to say is somebody said last week, hey, since the pews are, I guess pews, whatever, I mean, our rows are bigger and longer, uh, we are to have uh, fill a row next Sunday. And so if you want to try to fill the row that you set on, then by all means, fill a row, fill two, fill three, fill as many as you want. Uh, but it would be great. Um, nonetheless, if you would get the word out this week to those that you care about and those that you love, uh, even those that you don't care about or love. <laughs> that Jesus loves them and that you'd love for them to come to church with you next Sunday. And, uh, or maybe there's some people that they don't think you love them, but you really do. And that would be a great way to express it by inviting them uh, next Sunday. So uh, hopefully all of that filler has given you plenty of time to find yourself to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Now, real quick, let's, let's kind of set our context this morning. We are still, on, we are still Tuesday uh, of Passion Week. And some of you may think, how long does Tuesday go on? Because we got through Palm Sunday very quickly, and the Monday of Passion Week went by very quickly. But it seems like we've been stuck on Tuesday for a long time now. Well, today ends Tuesday, and when we come back, Next Sunday, we will uh, be moving into Wednesday of Passion Week. But uh, actually, of all, the, uh, all that the Bible gives us concerning this last week of the life of Christ, uh, Tuesday, by volume, is uh, the, the longest day that is uh, recorded. The other days um, go by uh, fairly quickly, except when we get to... Uh, to Good Friday, but Tuesday is by, long, by, by far the longest day as it is recorded 
in the Bible. So let's read these words. I'm reading out of the ESV uh, translation this morning. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen. If you got a bulletin this morning, we, we put the scripture in the bulletin as well. So you've got many ways that you can follow with us. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, this is speaking of Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. I, 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 before we go any further, I want to say, this has been, every sermon has what I call cutting room floor material. And that is material that you thought was going to make it into the sermon. And, you know, when it's 10,000 and 15,000 word manuscripts, and you're like, nobody's going to set through 10,000, 15,000 word manuscripts. I mean, that's two hour sermons. And you start trying to whack it down and get it down and stuff starts falling off. And you're like, okay, that's good, but it's not necessarily important. Because remember what I told you last week? You need to make the main things the plain things and the plain things are the main things. So that's kind of where I've, uh, I've come as I've gotten older in my preaching is, is to try to not give you everything that the text says, but give you the most important thing at that time that the text says, and I can always come back and preach more sermons off that. I could take the first two verses and preach an entire sermon off these first two verses about just the plot to kill uh, Jesus, because there's some interesting stuff that's happening there. But nonetheless, they don't want to kill Jesus because all of these people, as historians tell us, and Josephus, probably the most accurate of those historians, tell us that there's probably the city of Jerusalem has swelled during the uh, Passover week to over a quarter of a million people. Some historians say there could be as many as two million people in the city. And this is a city that normally would have about 25,000 people in it. So it is, I mean, there is a massive influx of people into Jerusalem, all right? And so uh, they, they don't want to get, they don't want to stir the pot, all right? Because remember, Jesus has already come in on his triumphal entry. They're waving palm branches. They're treating him like he is a king. He's got the crowd behind him at this point. We know that that's going to change in the next, you know, 24 hours. The crowd is no longer going to wave palm branches, but they're going to be screaming out, crucify him, and no longer crying out, Hosanna. And so uh, that's why they're not wanting to do this until the feast is over. But guess what? The Bible had prophesied that Jesus would be crucified during what? The Passover. And so we see them trying to uh, change the timetable of the crucifixion, and yet God is going to, as he always does, he is, the, uh, uh, he is sovereign over all situations of life, and we will see as this plays out in the next several weeks, uh, we will see how God, God's sovereign plan overcomes any plans that man makes or tries to accomplish. And while he was at Bethany, so let me tell you what's happening here. This account is also recorded in Matthew's gospel, in Luke's gospel, and in John's gospel. But John says that this event happened six days prior, okay? And, And so what we have that's happening here is that you might think, well, you know, one, one writer says two days, another writer says six days, and, and basically they're talking about the same event, 
uh, only what, I mean, what Mark is doing here is that he is telling us, hey, they're wanting to crucify Jesus, but they're going to wait until the Passover is over. And so Mark is kind of, uh, it's almost kind of like a CSI uh, uh, episode. You know how CSI will start with the, the end and then they, then they flesh it all out? Well, kind of what Mark is doing here, he's telling you what's going on and then he's going to pump the brakes and take you back six days before, okay? Um, and he is going to unfold for you um, how the events that are going on in verses 1 and 2 actually got to that point, all right? So he's going back two days. John, John says he's going back six days, but the truth of it is it's six days, all right? So, um, so they're talking about the same event, John talks about it as it's actually happening, and, and uh, Mark actually talks about it four days after it happened, which is two days before the time frame that John's talking about, all right? So it probably confused you even more, but <laughs> nonetheless, that's what, it's the same story. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at table, a woman, now it says just a woman here. If you read John's account, we know very clearly this is Mary, okay? This is Mary. A woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it out over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, now this is an interesting word here, it literally means to snort like a horse. <laughs> so I know some of you have got horses, and if your horse has ever snorted at you, one, one commentator said probably even a better illustration is to think of the matadors in, in Spain and how a bull will snort before charging at a matador. That's basically, that, that's, that's the idea here. That's how they're acting. Why was this ointment wasted like that? And, and they just don't say it once. They're saying it over and over and over and over again. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone, and, and, and literally, that means leave her alone right now. Stop it. Not another word. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand, before burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is why all of a sudden the story is going to pick up speed, because now Judas has brought to them something that expedites what they had initially determined they were going to do. There was an article back in 1998 that was written in Sports Illustrated that I think it would be very beneficial for us to hear the opening paragraph of this particular SI article. 
When President Clinton professed profound regret last week, and I'm quoting the article, by the way, uh, last Friday over last year's accident in which 20 people died when a U.S. military plane severed the cable on an Italian ski lift, he echoed another recent pronouncement. In February, uh, he uh, recall, he was profoundly saddened by a People magazine puff piece on his daughter. If two events, one tragic and one trivial, evoke the same rhetoric of grief, is either statement meaningful? We live in an age of profound baloney. Certain words have been turned upside down and had all the meaning shaking from their po- shaken from their pockets. In sports, there have been enough historic moments, enough epic games, enough greatest players of all time to render those phrases empty. Superlatives, even when appropriate, are bees that sting one time and then they die. Oh, I love that. Superlatives, even when appropriate, are like bees that sting one time and then they die. I think the author was accurate and insightful. Why? Because when I read that article, it made me think of today's text and the challenge that is before us this morning and the challenge that is before me as the Bible teacher this morning. How can I teach you what is profound in an age of profound baloney? How can I use superlatives appropriately and effectively if they have become bees that sting once and then they die? Because the aim of any Bible teacher and preacher is not for you to be stung one time and then move on from it, but it is to be stung and, to, and forever to be affected by that which you've been stung by. Today's text is an extraordinary text inside of extraordinary Scripture. All of Scripture is given to us for our instruction and obedience. And yet Jesus says of this passage, look at what he says of this. We, you can blow by this and, and not see this. Jesus says, and truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Do you know that Jesus says, does not say that about anybody else in all the Bible? He doesn't make that remark concerning Peter, James, or John, his inner circle. He doesn't make that remark about the woman that we read about just a few weeks ago who gave all she had when she put her two half pennies into the collection box. It is here that Jesus just less than 48 hours from his death, points out to a woman who has done something to him four days before and said, you know what? That event is the event when the Bible is preached in all the world, as we read last week, for a witness, it will be, her story will be told. So let me tell you something this morning. If Jesus says that this story is paramount, this story is of such importance that it is the only story of any other human being in the Bible that is to be told in all of the world, then you and I are to pay close attention to the story. Because Jesus has something he wants to say to us. 
And I will say this this morning, as we work this text out, every person in this room, if you listen to anything that I say this morning, at some point in time, you are going to be provoked by what you hear. And provoke can can be a negative, and it can be a positive. And I am praying... I know that you are going to be provoked negatively, but I'm praying that that negativity will move into positivity and it will move you to action. Some will dismiss it as religious fanaticism. Others will hear what what is said this morning and the Spirit, and they will hear in it, the Spirit say, this is the way, walk in it. But yet, while we hear, this is the way, walk in it, we will simultaneously experience an internal struggle (laughs) that'll say, no, go a different way. Anybody ever had that experience in reading your Bible? Anybody? Is it just me? Am I the only person that reads the Bible and I hear the Spirit say, this is the way walking it, while yet at the same time, there's another part of me that says, no, don't do that. Okay, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's going to confess that this morning. That is my constant struggle in reading the Bible because there is the spirit inside of me that says, yes, obey that. That's the way to walk. And yet there's the flesh that remains in me that says, you know what? That's a hard path. That's a difficult road. You don't really want to go down that because it's not easy. And then there's a third group that will understand more fully that he is worth it all and will begin to live in such a way. Today's text was written not to condemn, but to convict. If you feel condemned by what you hear this morning, then you've not heard what the Bible is saying. Now, we'll say this. If you refuse to believe what the Bible says, then the condemnation you feel is the condemnation you brought on yourself. But the Bible's aim is conviction. Why? Because conviction leads to what the Bible calls repentance. And repentance is the, and the aim of repentance is refreshment. I don't know why repentance has got such a bad rap over the years, why so many people don't want to repent, because according to the book of Acts, the Bible says that when we repent, we we experience times of refreshment from the Lord. Anybody in here use a little refreshment this morning? Anybody use a little renewing this morning? Anybody need a little fresh wind in your sails this morning? Well, repentance is how God brings refreshment. And then refreshment leads us to what I would call compulsion, which is it moves us to act. It moves us to to action. I want to make just three simple points from this morning's text, and it simply is this. I've entitled this, the sermon, Lovers of Jesus, an Example. And I didn't make that up. I, 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 I took it from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who preached from this text some 140 years ago, maybe 150 years ago now, uh, to his congregation in England. And so here's what I've learned from this text. Learned a lot, but this is, what, this is the point of focus and emphasis I'm going to Take on the text this morning. Lovers of Jesus express their love publicly. Lovers of Jesus express their love publicly. Like if I was to go through the audience this morning and say, how many of you love Jesus? Or if I told David, David, 
Let's sing, Oh, How I Love Jesus. That's one of the great songs I grew up on as a teenager. Y'all remember that song? Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Y'all remember that? It's a great song. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. We could have we sung that song, and everybody in the room would have sung it and said, Amen, that's, that's, that's my testimony. See how I tied that back? That's pretty good, wasn't it? That's my testimony. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? Y'all never did that? That's, we used to do weird stuff in the 80s when I was in teenage you know, youth group. We'd do these little chants. You know, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And we'd all say yes. But do you remember what we've been seeing over the last several months and as we've come down to these final days in the book of Mark? We see that Jesus is telling us, he's like, look, in the first eight chapters, I've showed you what it looks like to love God and to love people. And Jesus says, what it looks like to love God is to obey God. And when you obey God, the outflow of obeying God is love for other people. If you look at the life of Jesus, and we saw him rapidly, one, one miracle, one, one miracle after another, all throughout the book of Mark, it was fast-paced, it was quick, it was like re reading a, a Twitter feed uh, in the early days of Mark, and now all of a sudden, as Mark has gotten into this, these final days of Jesus' life, he's kind of slowed down, and he's peering back into those, those rapid days of when Jesus was serving and doing all of these miracles. And, and Mark has said, he has reminded us of what Jesus said, and that is, if you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you, and, and the chief end of man is to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then if he does that, the second will follow, and he will love his neighbor as he loves himself. And so that's what we see in the life of Jesus. We just see Jesus loving God with everything that is within him and loving people. And now we come down to these final days, and we've seen this woman two weeks ago who goes to the offering box and, box, and Jesus is watching her from across the way, and she drops in two mites. And out of everybody that had given that day, Jesus said, that is the woman that you must pay attention to. That is the woman that you will learn from. Why? Because if you're going to love God with all of your heart, that means you love God with all that you have. Uh-oh. You see what I mean? Right now, you're starting to squirrel a little bit. I, I, see, I see people starting to twitch in their chairs. And I'm like, oh, no, not, not everything that I got. Like, like some of what I got. Like, right? You remember what I told you about when we had like, I got this. I, I love you with all of this, but I got to hold on to this. Like, you can't get over here in this part of my life because that's the stuff that I really love. That's the, that's the stuff I love more than I love you, Lord. And the Lord's like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't have that. And now he brings this woman into our life. And it is incredible that he is bringing women into the picture to be the main characters of the story because this is a culture that women, I mean, look, I know that women have had it bad in the last 100 years plus. Treated bad, couldn't vote, all the stuff that went with that. But, it, but listen, if we think the way that women have been treated is terrible in the last 150 years of the United States, we ain't got nothing on the way that Jewish people treated women. 
Dogs, like there, there's Gentile dogs, then there's women. Okay? I mean, I mean, they are next to the lowest on the totem pole. And here Jesus is using them to say, that's what I want you to look like. That's how I want you to live. Now Jesus is saying, look, you need to pay, you need to pay close attention because if, you're gonna, if, if you are really a lover of God, you will love God publicly. There's no private lo- loving Christians. You, you don't go home and love Jesus in your home and not love him in public. It, you, you can't have a privatized faith. Your, your faith must be public or it's no faith at all. Your faith must be out there. It, it, it must be who you are, not something that you do. It, it's not some compartment in your life. It is your life and all the compartments of life fit into it. We must go public. She goes public with her faith. Where do I get that? Well, look right there in Mark fourteen three. She goes into a room full of men. How many men? Fifteen at least. Jesus, Simon the leper, Lazarus, according to John's gospel, is there, and then twelve disciples. Fifteen men in a room. And she goes in, and she's not there to put some food on the table. She's there for something much bigger and much more important. And that's John's gospel. You can see there that Lazarus was there, whom Jesus uh, raised from the dead, and they were at the home of Simon the leper. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is an astonishing act. And, 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 the, and the, the, the vitriol that these men respond with show how great of an act it is. Listen, when you go public with your faith, the response is not going to be good, by and large. Oh, yeah, you'll have some people that will love you, and you'll have some people that will be grateful for your stance. But you're going to have many others that are going to be uncomfortable by your fanaticism. It's like the old DC Talk song says, what will people think? when they find out that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find out it's true? But you gotta, you got to finish the song. I really don't care if they label me a Jesus freak. Why? Anybody know the next line? Because there ain't no denying the truth. That's who I am. And listen, the people that are going to criticize you the most are going to be the people that you go to church with. They're going to be the ones that are going to tell you to calm down, cool your jets, 
Um, you're taking this a little too far. Lovers of Jesus express their love implicitly. And you may say, ah, that's a strange word. It's not a common everyday word that we use implicitly. It may not be common, but we are to use it. Let me tell you what implicitly means. This is why it's such a good word. Without saying so. In a way that does not use words. How about we need a little bit more of I mean, don't get me wrong. We need to talk about our faith. But we need some implicit faith. Some faith that just talks by its actions. You know, the old saying is a lot of people don't believe what Christians say. Because our actions are so loud that people can't hear our words. Without question or without reservation, you just do it. You just do it. And that's what is going on here. Lovers of Jesus will express their faith implicitly. Her love for Jesus was implicit while many in today's church practice what we might call, I'm going to make something up here, efficient love. Efficient love. Efficiency is the relentless taskmaster that drives all of our decisions, all of our proposal, and all parts of our life. Efficiency pervades the church as well as the corporation. Everything we do is justified by its calculated contribution to the established goals. The disciples were quite modern to protest. What did they say? This is a waste of valuable oil. And Jesus alerts us that efficiency is an inadequate governor for at least one crucial encounter, and that is people with God. In worship, let efficiency take its place, but not primary, but not a primary place. In evangelism, use resources wisely, but don't calculate the cost benefits as accountants are trained to do. What appears to be waste may well bring Jesus supreme enjoyment. And that matters most. Church business meetings are the least favorite part of a pastor's pastoral experience. And that's why we don't have many business meetings. I mean, really, we don't. We have a couple of family gatherings once a quarter. We have one once a quarter to talk about what God's doing but there's no traditional business meetings. We have a, uh, a leadership team that guides and steers the, the church in the direction that we feel like the Lord is leading us in. But even in that, there are times, and we've got great leadership, but this is what I've always cautioned our leadership about. We can't treat God's money like we're bankers or investment strategists or that we're trying to put some kind of retirement plan in place. God gives us the money to spend and spend it in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. We're not here to try to stockpile some arsenal of funds to be used in a yet day that's undetermined. Are we supposed to be wise? Absolutely. But, but, but many times we move from wisdom to efficiency. 
And what happens is it kills love. Love for God and love for others. This woman, <laughs> y'all, 300 denarii. You, you probably read that and thought, well, that means nothing to me, Brother Jason. And it doesn't, does it? Because you, you got to know what 300 denarii is equal to, right? It's, a denarii is a day's wage. She just spent a, a whole year's wage on Jesus. Holy cow. No wonder they were indignant. No wonder they were snorting like a horse and a bull. They were like, how can you spend? We could have fed the poor. And all they could have done is fed 300 poor people one day. They weren't going to change the world with 300 denarii. And dare say they were even going to feed the poor with 300 denarii. Because when you read John's gospel, John tells us in this same story... He gives us a little commentary, and he says, oh, hey, by the way, that guy, Lazarus, who's objecting to the wastefulness of the money, oh, by the way, he's over the treasury, and he's a thief. Go read, John's, go read John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It's exactly what John says about him. He's a thief, and Jesus put him over the treasury. And it's amazing that Lazarus could calculate the value of those 12 ounces in a matter of seconds. He knew exactly what it was worth. She didn't care. As far as we know, this woman had no husband. Not good to live in those days and not have a husband. I know days are different today. You, you can be a self-sustaining woman, stand on your own two feet, but not back in those days. Bad to be a single woman. Well, maybe that was the, the inheritance that her father had left for her, was, was to get her through and to make sure that she was going to be taken care of for the rest of her life. There's a lot of speculations on why she had that, had that uh, incredibly valued, valuable 12-ounce uh, flask of nard. But I can tell you this. <laughs> it didn't matter to her. Because something transpired inside of her heart and her life that caused her to break. Look, here's the other thing she didn't do. I'm, 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 I'm bringing stuff back in that I said I was going to leave on the floor. So y'all, I'm sorry. She could have some, look, I think, so let, let me just kind of think here for a second how we would do this. We might, okay, well, Jesus, let's, yeah, let's anoint it, right? I mean, that, that would be the proper thing to do. Some of us would, me included, would come out and we'd just take the bottle and maybe we'd do a little, you know, a little, little, little dab will do you, right? You ever had something real expensive and you were pouring it out and you were like, now, and you were telling your kid, don't pour it all out. I mean, that's got to last us, you know, forever, right? And just drip it out. That's probably the way we would do it. Guess what? If, if, if we went to one of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and we said, hey, Jesus is here, and I've got this really expensive ointment, and I would love to go anoint Jesus. Like, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? I mean, he's the man. I mean, he's the one that's 
come to save us from our sins. He's already saved me from my sin, right? I mean, what do you think about I go in there and anoint him? Well, you know what? That would probably be good. Yeah, I've got this bottle of oil, this flask of oil, that I just want to go in there and pour it all over Jesus because I love him that much. And they're like, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's don't pour it all over the man. That's, do you know how much that's worth? Your daddy gave that to you because you're a single woman. And in this world of single women, you need all the help you can get. You don't have a man in your life right now. How are you going to pay your bills in the future? I mean, think about all the things that we would say to say, don't pour it all, but just give him a little bit. I'm sure glad she didn't go talk to anybody else. Because them cats right there, she might not even got a drop out. They said, no, no, give that to us. We are going to feed the poor with it. She doesn't do that. And I love the fact she didn't pour it out. She just broke it and, just, and then poured it out. She broke the, she broke the, the class. I mean, the, 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 the flask. She's broken in half and poured it all out on Jesus. Listen, and that's what, what, what is Jesus wanting us to see here? Jesus is wanting you and I to see this, that he wants you and I to simply and absolutely give everything to him. The only way that you're going to find joy in this Christian experience is if you break it open and you give Jesus everything that you are. They're snorting, and I just imagine her just with the biggest smile on her face. Don't you? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, they're over there, they're snorting like a bunch of horses and bulls, and she's over there, and she's just pouring it out on Jesus, and she loves it, and it's running down, and it's going, and then she's pouring it on his feet, and then she gets down with that long Jewish hair, and she starts wiping that oil into his skin, into his into his body and this fragrance is filling the room she has humbled herself under the mighty hand of God and and if you remember what James Jesus half brother would later write he says if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God he will exalt you in due time and Jesus exalts her very high because he says your act of humility your act of of, of extravagant love will be remembered for all time. Let me, let me tell you something this morning. If you and I will break our lives open and we'll pour everything out to Jesus, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. People are going to ridicule it and, people, and then other people are going to run to it. And they're going to say, look, you got to tell me what gives somebody a life such as yours. Not a perfect life, but a life that undoubtedly has had an encounter with something great, something life-altering, something life-changing, something that gives joy and peace in the midst of circumstances where joy and peace shouldn't exist. Where does that come from? And all you can say is, it's pretty simple. All you do is give all of you to all of Him and that's what you get in return. But you got to give it all. You, you can't hide anything back. You can't have something stashed away in the closet. You, you, you can't have your hand partially way open. You can't have something stuck away in your back pocket. You can't have something uh, you know, stuck away somewhere where nobody can see it. you got to bring everything to Jesus and say, here's 
everything that I am and I give it to everything that you are. Let me finish. Lovers of Jesus express their love decisively. And I'm kind of already into this point already, is that it's just a decisive action. Listen, some people read this and say, oh, she let her emotions get the best of her. Her emotions ran over her. Mm -mm. No, it wasn't emotions. She didn't act, she didn't act uh, uh, impulsively or impetuously. This woman, her actions were premeditated. She had been thinking about it for a long time. Let me get to the verse on the screen because I want you to see it in the old King James Version. Because I think King James says it the best. It gives us the... And that's why I've always encouraged you when you read texts of the Bible, read, read different translations. ESV, NASB, NASB um, King James, NIV, all, all good to, to look at. Because sometimes they'll, they'll key on a word and they do a better job of bringing that word. So here it is. Come on, give me, give me five minutes here. Then said Jesus, this is from John chapter, this is from John's account, chapter 12, verse 7. Let her alone against the day of my burying has, hath she kept this. The word kept is the key word. What made this woman act? like she was outside of her mind? What sent her into what is, appears to be some type of fanaticism? What, what's done this? One commentator said this about, about Mary. He said, Mary was the best listener in the Bible. And I got to researching that. Mary's only mentioned three times in the Bible. So... Well, she's mentioned more than that, but three times in particular in the Bible, she's said to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, one time she got in trouble for that. Remember that? Because Martha was doing all the work and Mary wasn't doing anything. That's another sermon for another time. But the thing was, she was sitting at Jesus' feet and she was listening to what Jesus said. And, and here's, here's the way I, here's the way in, in praying about this, and I reached out to a couple other pastor friends, and I'm like, hey, look, what... What do you think about this? Am I, am I off my rocker? Have I gone down the wrong path in interpretation? And I got some consensus from a couple other pastor buddies of mine. And so here's where I'm landing on that word kept. I'm, I'm going to put some pieces of the puzzle together and say it was during those moments where she sat at the feet of Jesus and Jesus was teaching her. And in particular, Jesus was teaching about there's going to come a day when, when I'm going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected. And, and she heard Jesus talk about that, that he was the Messiah, which means what? Anointed one. I think when she's pouring that oil over the top of his head, the scripture says that she was doing it in preparation for his burial, but I think she was doing it for that and really for one other reason, is that she was saying by pouring it over his head that she was saying, I acknowledge you as my king. You are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And she covered his whole body in it 
to represent exactly what the scripture says, that she was preparing his body for burial because she knew what Jesus said was true. The disciples hadn't caught on to it yet. They were still struggling with it. Peter's about to say, oh no, Lord, they're not going to crucify you. I'm going to step in before that happens. Those guys didn't get it, but she was the best listener of the bunch. And what happened was the words of Jesus so penetrated her heart and her life that it changed her ways. And the reason why she did what she did is because she believed what Jesus had already said. And when she believed that, she kept that oil in reserve because she was waiting for this day. She was. She had kept that and reserved that because she was waiting for this day. And when Jesus showed up six days before his crucifixion, she said, today is what I've been keeping this for the whole time. And she went into her room and she got that nard out and she came in and she said, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, I believe that you're, you're, you're about to die for me, but I believe that you're going to rise again. Why? Because you are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. You are the God of the universe. You are exactly who you say you are. And I am, I believe that. And because I believe that, I give you everything because you are my everything. She was decisive. She was decisive. How about us this morning? Are we going to be decisive? Are we going to keep kind of going on our current trajectory? How many times is the Holy Spirit going to have to come to us? Come on, David. How many times is the Holy Spirit going to have to come to us and say, you know what? He's worth it all. Oh, you've given him, you've given him a lot of your life, but, but you haven't given him everything. You, you, you haven't, you, you've seen him as, as your Savior. And yes, you confess him as your Lord, but to be your Lord means that you've got to give everything to who he is so that you can get everything that he is. It may sound something like this in closing this morning. This poem supposedly originated in the co continent of Africa. It was found in the heart of Africa, etched in a mud hut of a young African man who had been saved through missionary endeavors. And when he was saved, he was ridiculed, he was chastised, he was beaten, he was in prison because he was a Christian. And the story goes that sometime during his imprisonment, he etched the following words on the wall of his imprisonment. And this is what I'm going to leave you with today. This is what it looks like to love Jesus. If you're a lover of Jesus, this is the kind of motto or mantra that you want for your life. I am a part of the fellowship of the un unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
I will not look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is re redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am done. And I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My God reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will no longer, I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy. I will no longer ponder at the pool of popularity. And I will no longer meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I have prayed up, preached up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go till he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear for all to see. Hmm? Are your colors clear for all to see? Are you, have you gone public? Are you ready to make a decisive decision today in your life? That you know what, Jesus? It's time for me to really go all in on what I say I believe. I'm not, ask, I'm not asking you to, to get saved. I'm, I'm asking you to finally go all in on your salvation. I, I, I want you to say salvation is more than me not going to hell and going to heaven. That salvation is about me being in relationship with, with the God of the universe daily. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to ask David to, to sing this final song. And at any point in time, you can stand and sing with him. But, but really, I just, this morning, we're, we, we all come into this room at different places in, in, in our Christian existence. And some of us don't even come in, in this morning as a Christian. I mean, we're, we're a long ways from the Lord. And we hear this story and our reaction is just like Judas's reaction. <laughs> That's crazy. Why would somebody why would somebody waste just waste like this woman? And and if that's if that's if that's your response then then you're just like Judas. You've never had an experience of what we as Christians call salvation. Because once you see Jesus and all that he has done for us, then what she has done for him is nothing. Her, her act of extravagance is really nothing in comparison to what he has done for us.
And if that's where you are this morning, I just want to pray for you very quickly. Father, I pray that you would help anyone who sees this as the most ridiculous thing they've ever seen, the most ridiculous story they've ever heard, that you would open their eyes to see what a wonderful and incredible story this is, a story like none other, because it shows us what the heart, how the heart responds when it sees who you are. And I just pray this morning that you would show anyone who who can't see you and your glory and how great you are and how sinful they are. I just pray this morning that you would open up their eyes so they can see you and see themselves. But they can also hear your voice that says, if you'll come to me, I'll make you new. Yes, I'm holy and perfect. And yes, you're not. But you can still come to me because of what my son has done for you. And then, Father, for the Christians amongst us who see that and hear your spirit saying, yes, this is the way, walk in it. I pray that they would lay aside all of their, all that inhibits them from going all in with you. Teenagers, young, young married couples, middle-aged people, senior adults, it doesn't matter. They would just say, you know what? I've wasted enough time, no matter what my age is, I'm going all in. They, Father, they would just come to you this morning asking you to, 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 to make today a day that their life will never be the same again. A day when they really began to walk with you in newness and freshness like never before. Because, Father, the aim of being a Christian is to live the life that we just read about this morning. And all that you promise us in this word is found in us giving everything to you. Because when we do, you will give everything of yourself to us. You will not hold anything back from us. So help us not to hold anything back from you. I'm going to ask you to remain in this posture of prayer. David, if you will, go ahead and start singing. Our altars are open. If you feel led to do that and come pray, you can. If you just want to make that chair an altar this morning before the Lord and lay yourself upon it, then you go ahead and do that. Whatever, whatever you need to do, whatever the Lord is leading you to do, that's what we invite you to do this morning.